So today we're wrapping up this series on worship and what it means to be a worshiping community, uh, particularly as it focuses on how we engage when we come together on a Sunday morning. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been playing around in Psalm 84. So I want to read uh, just the beginning of this and remind you of the words of Psalm 84 before we go further. Um, so Psalm 84, first couple of verses and then jump into verse 10 say, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of, of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So you hear the psalmist's hunger for God and his delight in the presence of God. And we get this beautiful vision of what it means to delight in the presence of God. But while Psalm 84 paints the vision of what being in the presence of God in his house might be like and what the kind of heart of someone that delights in the Lord might be, Psalm 15 tells us the type of person that gets to have that sort of experience. Here's Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Who may dwell in the sacred tent? Who may live on his holy mountain? Who may be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? In one word, the person who is holy. Holiness is not a word we like very much today in the church because holiness means there's certain things that I've got to do and certain things that I've not to do. Holiness means there's a righteous standard that we live to, which means there are people in the world who don't live to that standard. Holiness means there's things I have to die to rather than just getting a go where I want. We don't always love the word holy. We've implied through the series the importance of holiness, but we've not dealt with it explicitly, so we will now. Uh, and here's the deal. There is a direct relationship between holiness and worship, right? We know this. As always, my job is to tell you what you should already know and what the Bible makes really clear. There is a relationship between holiness and worship. So one of the passages we've looked at already in this series, the throne room scene and Revelation. Uh, John sees a door into heaven. He looks through the door and there's a throne in the center of the room. There are 24 other thrones around this throne. There's a rainbow of colors flowing from this. On each of the 24 thrones are 24 elders. Right in the middle around the central throne are these four magnificent hard to picture creatures uh, who are circling this throne. And Revelation 4 says this, day and night, those creatures never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The center of their worship 
is the understanding of the holiness of God. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. These beings, these four magnificent beings plus these 24 elders are captivated by the holiness of God so that their only response is to fall down on their faces in worship. When I think of this moment, it makes me think of Peter and Luke chapter 5 where they go out on the boat and Jesus is like, hey, throw the net over the other side of the boat. And they're like, eh, you don't know what you're talking about. We've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing Okay, since you're Jesus, we'll do it. They throw the net over the other side. They get this miraculous haul of fish. And in that moment, something is revealed of who Jesus is so that Simon Peter's response is to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. He experienced something of the holiness of God that revealed his unholiness. The message, Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way. Simon Peter, when he saw the catch of fish, fell to his knees before Jesus. Master, leave. I'm a sinner and I can't handle this holiness. Leave me to myself. There is a relationship between holiness and worship. Now, while there's a relationship between holiness and worship, God's holiness and our worship, there's also a relationship between our holiness and our worship, and it's this. There's a relationship between the degree of our holiness and the quality of our worship. If you want to be someone that offers God good quality worship, you have to be someone that increases the degree of your holiness. Let's look back at Psalm 15. And we'll use it as a little checklist to see how we're doing in the pursuit of holiness and our worthiness to be in the presence of God. Lord, who can dwell in your sacred tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless. If that's you, stand up. <laughs> Better not be standing when I say that. Um, who does what's righteous and speaks the truth from their heart. I mean, I think we can say we all try. There are times when we speak the truth. Maybe we speak the wrong truth from our broken heart sometimes. Maybe we refrain from speaking God's truth out of fear in moments. Um, whose tongue utters no slander. Has anyone in here ever spoken negatively about someone else in the world that you know or don't? It's a presidential election coming up. We get to see this one in full play in our society. The one who does no wrong to a neighbor. Is there anyone in here that's never hurt someone else? Has never wronged another person, never spoken a slur against them? Who can dwell in your sacred tent? The one who despises vile people. Are you a good judge of who is the one who fears the Lord and who's the one that is vile and dishonors the Lord? Is there anyone in here that's ever celebrated somebody despite the fact that they don't walk in the way of Jesus, that their character and behavior dishonors who he is and yet we celebrate who they are and throw ourselves behind them. 
the one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. How good are you at keeping your promises? Have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever had the experience of keeping the oath at great cost to yourself? The one who lends money to the poor without interest. These verses bother me. <laughs> Did they bother anyone else? <laughs> Who are the ones that are usually trying to borrow money in this world? The ones that don't have it. And yet we charge ridiculous amounts of interest on all the things that are borrowed. And I read this verse and I, ha you know, I have this thing that happens. You may have done likewise. You're driving through the esplanade. You see someone on the corner with their sign asking for money. And you think, well, I don't know how they're going to use it. I want an accounting of how they're gonna spend it. And in many senses, what we want is, I want good return on my investment, right? I wanna sow this money, and I want to know that they're using it correctly. I'm lending to the poor, but expecting interest. It may not be financial interest, but I'm expecting a return. The one who doesn't accept a bribe against the innocent. You may not have directly accepted a bribe, but there's lots of ways where we allow someone, hey, would you do this for me? Even though you know it's going to affect this person over here, we curry favor with someone we, uh, at the expense of other people. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? According to this list, how are you doing? Are you holy and worthy of the presence of God? Are you blameless and righteous and truth-speaking? I think I've shared this story here before, it's been a while, but one of, one of the moments that comes to mind when I think about this is back when I was in my 20s, I was being mentored by a guy in Glasgow, we were planting a church together, uh, he, uh, he was reading through the Bible with me, he was calling me to try and line my life up with what I read in scripture, he was calling me to walk in integrity. And one day, we're, I, I, I don't even know what we've been reading, what we've been talking about. We were sitting down one-on-one, -on -one and I, I think I was working on something graphic design-wise for the church. And he's just like, the so what software do you use for like, doing graphic stuff for the church? I was like, oh, like Adobe Photoshop. Now, this is a long time ago. Uh, this is, uh, when would this be, 2004, 2005, somewhere there. So Adobe Photoshop was in a much younger version and much more expensive than it is today. But he's like, did you buy that? And I was like, no, I downloaded it. Like I've got this software, I can go online, I can download software and then someone will give you a code and you can stick it in. And he's like, so like piracy. I was like, oh yes, people call it that, but like I just can't afford it and I need this. And like, we use it all the time for the church. He's like, oh, if it's pirated, we don't need it for the church. Let's not use that. Let's figure out something else. I'm like, no, I need this software. I can't use uh, the coloring book on Microsoft to make this happen. Like, I just, I just can't do it. Um, and he's like, well, if it means that much to you and you need it so badly, buy it. At that point, it was over a thousand pounds to get the software. So I... I won't tell you how I went about doing it, but I got the money and I bought the software. As part of that process, he looked at me and he's like, you know, this seems to be a little bit of a pattern. I know that you've got a bunch of pirated software. I know you've got a bunch of pirated DVDs. I used to boast that I'd go on and find the DVD cover and buy covers and print them out on fancy paper and stick them inside. And I had to stack up the sides of my walls and I wasn't walking with Jesus. Um, and this, this was a, a pattern that I'd inherited. And, uh, and he looked at me and he's like, if you really want to follow Jesus, 
If you really want to be about the work of his kingdom, you can't do that stuff. He's like, I can't tell you what to do, but if it was me, I would delete all the pirated software and I would throw out all the pirated movies and I would only buy what you're paying for because otherwise it's stealing. And I, I, I didn't understand. Like I felt that internal conviction, like he's saying something, this hurts. Like, I'm embarrassed because you're calling me out on something. And I went home and I was like, I can't do this. My mom watches those DVDs. She's paid for some of them. She's like, she's paid me to pirate things for her. Uh, this little business that I've got going on, I can't, can't get rid of them. And, um, and then one day I was sitting and God's like, are you about me or are you about you? And so this 20 years ago, I went through this list of, my mom caught me starting to tear up DVDs and she's like, well, I don't care about that, so I'm going to take the ones I want, and you can tear up the rest. So she took hers, and I went through, and I, I chopped up all of these DVDs. I deleted all my software. I spent thousands of dollars. Uh, I did the bad, bad thing, bad thing, wise thing. I don't know at the time. I got a credit card, bought all the software I needed, systematically paid it off so that I could use it there and then. Um, I don't advise getting into debt to do that stuff, but in that moment, it's what I needed to do. I felt like God was saying, I need you to be holy. And so I had this moment of purging in my life to get rid of things that clearly defiled my walk with Jesus. Um, I would love to say from that moment on, I have never again done anything wrong in my walk, (laughs) that I have lived sin-free since then, but there are regular moments where as I'm reading the, the word, as I encounter the character of God, as I'm singing in worship, and I see the songs, I'm reminded that he loves unconditionally and I love with condition. That he's generous and I'm stingy. That he is uh, trustworthy and faithful and I sometimes don't say what I mean or I say things that I don't mean and that I don't follow through on things I've said and I don't keep promises that I've made. And so I, uh, I owed someone in the church uh, crumble cookie, and so I rectified that debt this morning uh, in response to this, but God wants us to be holy. There's a direct relationship between the level or the degree of our holiness and the quality of our worship. Psalm 15 is written thousands of years ago, um, thousands of years before Jesus even, um, and then James Right into the church. You'd think a church growing up in these truths would know this, a church that had encountered Jesus so profoundly. But James, in his letter, describing our holiness and its relationship to worship, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue we curse human beings who have been made in, in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Remember the first time God used this passage to convict me. He gave me an image that went along with it. And in the image, he'd given me a canvas and a big tin of yellow paint. And it invited me to paint the sun. And this was my worship. Dip in the yellow paint and paint the sun. But every time I used my tongue for something that wasn't honoring to him, that he would take the paintbrush and dip it in black. And then he's like, paint the sun. And I dip it in the yellow and put this big brownie black smear across it. And then you're trying to put more yellow on and more yellow on. Eventually it's diluting down and then. And didn't matter what I do, once you do it, you can't get it back to yellow. And yet every day, 
Every week we walk through the world claiming to be followers of Jesus who use our tongue to praise him, claiming to be a worshiping community, yet we use our tongue, we dip it in the black paint, and then we come to worship and we wonder why our worship isn't as joy-filled as it could be, um, because we've marred it. There's a relationship between our holiness and our worship. All of this raises this question for me. What if we put the same effort into our preparation for worship as we do our evaluation of worship? What might happen in this room if we all turned up on a Sunday prepared to pour our heart out to him rather than waiting to evaluate and critique what we see in the world and the people around us? It's easy to evaluate. It's not so easy on us to do the preparation. Holiness, purity, being set apart, all things that we can be doing during the week to prepare the way that we walk so that when we come in here, we are free to offer Jesus what he deserves. You see the relationship between holiness and worship in Peter's writings. You see all the way through, we're going to look at a couple of different passages, one here and one at the end. But look again at how this relationship fits together. First uh, Peter chapter 1, he, after his little introduction, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Declaration of worship. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is being kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in that last time. We're praising God because he's given us salvation and he has given us a promised inheritance that it says he's keeping in a place where it can't perish, spoil, or fade, and in order to make sure that we get that inheritance, we're currently being shielded by his power to enable us to get there in the end to take hold of it, which I think is fantastic. Therefore, because of those truths, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as coming. Is there anyone here that is hopeful for Jesus coming? Is there anyone looking at the world going, Jesus, please come back now? Uh, be alert and fully sober, setting your hope on the grace that's going to come when he's revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Because of the amazing things that he has given us that cause us to burst out in praise, because of those things, we're called to live in holiness. Our natural response to the glory and the goodness of the work of God is that we should align our life to look like him. And yet so often we live our week that looks nothing like him and then we come in on Sunday and demand that he acts a certain way and moves in response to our prayers a certain way and that the way that we engage him happens a certain way. But God makes this invitation. You want this kind of worship? 
live this kind of holy life. The other thing that I love when I reflect on this passage and when I reflect on Psalm 15, who can, who can be in his presence, the one who's blameless? The gift is it's not down to us. Right? He makes us holy. He makes us blameless because Jesus takes our unrighteousness upon himself, died on the cross as punishment for it, was raised to the dead as vindication. And then when we put our faith in him, he puts his blamelessness on us. He clothes us in righteousness. He fills us with the spirit, the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. It's not down to us. He makes us holy. Yet there's work that we're required to do. Right? I wish it was the case that God just gave us holiness and we're done. There is a day. 1 John 3, 2. There's a day when we'll see Jesus face to face and we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. So there is a day where Jesus is going to be revealed and the level of revelation that we experience seeing him face to face is going to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. We're given our glorified body, hallelujah, especially after Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner <laughs> when you're aware of, 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 of all that's going on in your body. Um, but yeah, we're going to see him face to face. There is a moment where he's going to cleanse us entirely. He's not done it yet which means there's work for us to do as he's promised he has made us holy, but we've got work to do to partner with him in the process of becoming more holy in the way that we live. I wanna sidestep into just a little theology lesson here. Um, there are some words that we use in theology that we don't use in normal life, because why would you? Um, and when we're talking about the attributes of God, there are two categories that we use to talk about the attributes of God. One we call his communicable attributes and one we call his incommunicable attributes. So the word communicated or transferred. So God's incommunicable attributes are the ones that are reserved for only him. Only God is all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, unchanging, eternal, infinite, transcendent, self-sustaining, all of those things. They're incommunicable. No one else can have them. He can't give them to anybody else. But communicable attributes are the ones that he holds that he expects of us. He expects us to grow in wisdom. He tells us, he gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of God and of ourself and of his ways in the world. Uh, he imparted to us power. We are, we're not weaklings in the world. We have a body that is a power source that enables us to impact the world. He is holy. And holiness is one of these communicable attributes that by the power of the spirit that he's put inside of us, we're enabled to live a holy life. Um, so I, I just thought it was important because when you start looking at holiness, these two words come up if you read anything on holiness and if we don't know what they are, then we don't know what it's talking about. Um, so there are these communicable attributes, these attributes of God that he expects us to live, one, because we're made in his image, and by being image bearers, we already reflect these in some degree. But as Christians who surrender ourselves to him, like we talked about last week, we offer our body as a living sacrifice, giving everything that we have to him, then his spirit indwells us and that spirit then produces these qualities in us to the degree that we're willing to die to self and allow the spirit to take control. We can be holy and God commands it of us. 
At the end of 1 Peter, he's quoting from Leviticus 11. You might have noticed in this holiness series, I keep going back to Leviticus. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, uh, which is fun. God says in chapter 11, he's given them a whole bunch of instructions about what they can and can't eat. Uh, And so he says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourself unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. This point, the passage is saying, I'm God. You've got evidence of it by the way that I rescued you from Egypt through the revelations that I've given to the people, the people I've called, the nation I've been establishing. And I've given you a standard that you're supposed to live. So in this instance, the standard is don't eat these things. Uh, You go on into chapter 19, it's don't have sex with these types of people or in these situations. Uh, You go on into the end of Leviticus and it's like, here's how you uh, treat time as holy. You celebrate these days. So he gives them instructions on what holiness looks like and commands us to separate ourselves from the nation around us and live in a way that's distinct because that's who he is and that's how we reflect it to the world around us. Again, I don't know if it's just me, I, I read these passages and, and, and I get to this, like, the why question. Like, why does holiness matter? Like, or why are you wanting us to be holy the way you're holy? Is it just that you want us to live a certain way? I think the, the, the couple of easy reach answers, one of them is uh, our humanity was created in the garden to be without sin and our worship and our intimacy with God is at its freest and its fullest when there's no sin in our life, i.e. holiness equals greater intimacy. We live in this world where we are unholy and we're sinful and it distorts our intimacy with God. God is calling us to be holy, not to say, make life difficult and don't do the things that you might think are fun. He's saying, be holy because that's how I created you. This is where you experience your full potential as a human being and experience the level of intimacy with God that he wants. The other thing you see through Exodus, through Leviticus, through Deuteronomy as he's laying out the law is God as a holy being cannot have unholy things in his presence. So the command to be holy and all the laws in the Old Testament that set up what it looks like to be holy are his ways of making us as unholy people able to have holiness that lets us be in proximity to him the way we were designed for. So the command to be holy because I am holy is really actually an invitation to experience the full potential of your humanity and to experience the full level of intimacy and worship that you were created for. I put in bold another word in here that's a related word when it comes to talking about what it means to be holy and it's the word consecrate. The word consecrate in many senses is a good word that describes our role in the process of becoming holy. Consecrate means to set yourself apart to be wholly usable for God. How consecrated were you when you walked in the room today? As worship began, how much effort had you put in to making yourself set apart and wholly usable 
for God? And how did that then affect the way that you worship? In week one of this series, we looked at our calling as priests and the role of priests as worship leaders in the, the tabernacle and in the temple. And the word consecrated is often used in the Old Testament in relationship to priests. So as priests, they were called to be holy, to do the work that God called them to do in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so the people consecrated the priests to make them holy to do that work. So we're going to look and see, as we know, we're the priesthood of all believers, we are priests in God's kingdom. Therefore, we're called to be holy, and there's a consecrating work that we do uh, to do the role that God has called us to do in the world. So here is just a little snippet from Exodus 28. As they're setting apart Aaron and his siblings and, and descendants to be this holy priesthood. So Moses writes, make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I've given wisdom in such matters that they're to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as a priest. So there's a relationship between being consecrated and being able to serve God. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, the words, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban. It's to be on the front of the turban and it will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever those gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Couple of little things to, to draw attention to in here. I love the imagery if you know your Bible, the imagery of being clothed is really important for us as believers today. And I love this image of this gold medallion saying holy to the Lord hanging from the front of his turban over his head so that every time someone walks up to see the priest, the first thing they see is the reminder that this person has been declared as holy. By the work of Jesus on the cross, we don't have to buy special garments to wear to affirm our priesthood. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And then you read Revelation, he gives all these promises, the ones who overcome, the ones who stay faithful through all the pain and hardship and persecution that'll come. The ones that stay faithful, they'll be clothed. And these wedding garments prepared and ready to meet with their, uh, their groom, Jesus. And then we don't see it, but we have this thing called the Holy Spirit, which is like the medallion that hangs over our head, only it lives in here and carves on our hearts that we are holy and set apart for God. Our job is to understand that we are clothed in righteousness, that we house the Holy Spirit and we are holy. We now need to let the rest of the world see that that's the case. And the way that we live, the way we treat people, the way we engage scripture and prayer, those are the things that show the world what holiness is supposed to look like. And that changes the way we worship. Back to Peter, as Peter puts it in, in chapter two of First Peter. It's one of my favorite books. <laughs> I say that about every passage, <laughs> every book. Um, Leviticus, Philemon, Matthew, and First Peter. 
and Ephesians and Psalms. First <laughs> uh, Peter chapter two, as you come to him, as you walk up on the mountain, as you come into his presence, as you enter his gates with thanksgiving, as you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humanity, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Dear friends, live holy. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Praise and holiness hand in hand. Our praise of God, our response to his holiness. The transformation of our lives as holiness, as the response to the revelation of his holiness. The declaration of praise from us because of the transformation of holiness and the visible reminder of it by holy living to the world in a way that's gonna bring their worship of God through our holiness. You see that? Like how many ways can you? Now you're trying to draw one of those beasts front of the throne with all its wheels and eyes. Be holy as I am holy, and your worship will be plentiful. Reaccreditation is right around the corner. Uh, we are, I told you I sent off the application. I've had some emails back saying, well, think we can get your response by sometime in early December to let you know. So we're looking at dates in January for a potential reaccreditation celebration. <laughs> Here's the part that is more exciting for me and more terrifying for all of us. So let me say this, reaccreditation is around the corner, grab the booklet, come to a membership class, even if you're not ready to become a member, just come and it lets you understand who we are as a church. Prior to the reaccreditation Sunday, I want us to have a week of consecration. I want us to take a week. We're entering in to a significant spiritual milestone where our denomination has said, you're healthy again. You're able to function again the way God intended the church to function. And so they're gonna take the training wheels off. The leadership of the denomination are gonna come and they're gonna bless us to walk forward into this new calling. I can't help but look at it. I mean, it's a threshold moment. And all the threshold moments in the Bible, Joshua crossing into the promised land, consecrate yourselves. The priesthood being established, consecrate them. The, t the tabernacle being set up, 
Consecrate the tabernacle and all its utensils. The temple being set up. Consecrate the temple. Consecrate the musicians. Consecrate yourselves. Be ready. Ezra reforming the nation. Josiah reforming the nation. Consecrate yourselves and come back to the Lord. So I feel that God wants us to enter into a week of consecration. So January 15th to 21st is the provisional week that we're going to give to consecrating ourselves. And we're going to give more information about this and what it looks like. But here's, in brief, the five steps that are going to be involved. It's an invitation to recommit yourself to God. We're going to spend that week thinking, what does it mean to rededicate myself entirely to him? We're going to give you some tools to help you reflect on your motives as you walk in the world, as you engage your spouse, as you go to work, as you engage in the work of the church. It's a time to confess sin, get right, get all the unconfessed stuff out of your heart and at his feet. Um, It's going to be an invitation to examine your life. What are the things, whether it's a permanent move or just for that week, fasting? What are some of the things like social media that may pollute your mind that you want to get rid of for the week to be able to really hone in on him? And then what will it look like to draw near in prayer and worship and in the word and in the way that we serve him? Um, And so we're going to be doing morning and evening activities all week long. We're going to invite you to fast. We're going to be giving you resources to get our church ready spiritually uh, to understand the seriousness of the blessing that we're about to be given by the denomination and to walk into this together. And if it's true that the level of our holiness is directly related to the quality of our worship, then this week is gonna transform our church in a way that's gonna change the way that we worship him, the level of holiness that we walk in, and the way that that holiness is shown to the world so that they are caused to praise Jesus. So if we want to see amazing things in our church and our worship and through us into the world, here's Joshua's words. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. God can do more with one person fully consecrated to him and making every effort to walk in holiness than he can with 10,000 Christians who are living in compromise. Let me pray. God, thank you for the constant invitations to worship you. God, thank you for revealing yourself as holy. Thank you that you are set apart. There's no sin in you. You're flawless. You're always truthful. You're always faithful. God, there is no evil, no wickedness ever pours from you. God, you're not polluted. You are perfect and you're blameless. Thank you that that's the God that we worship. And then thank you that you put that in our reach, that you invite us to walk in holiness that brings us back into deep, intimate connection with you. Holiness that makes us more right the way that you intended us to live. Thank you for allowing holiness to be the church's biggest evangelistic tool as we walk in the world, showing people who you are, who Jesus was, what he did, and how he can transform our lives. God, make us holy and teach us to worship. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Question to wrap up. What is one thing that you could do to be better prepared to worship when you arrive 
on a Sunday morning, and then we'll finish with some songs. Thank you.